What is up, People First Leaders? My name is Chris Lin, and I am your advocate and host for the Leading People First podcast, where we are set to transform the workplace. I'm happy you're tuning in and joining me on this journey as we talk about leadership and its effect on the employee experience. Thank you so much for downloading this episode, and be sure to hit that subscribe button to get new episodes automatically downloaded to your device. So if you weren't aware, we're in a really big movement focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and there is a ton of information out there. I have a lot of professional colleagues and friends who are deeply entrenched in DEI work, so I really wanted to get a deeper understanding from an academic standpoint. I got a chance to talk with Victor Marsh, a PhD candidate in organizational behavior at the University of Colorado Boulder's Business School, where he's studying the challenge of innovation in organizations that face intense pressure to conform to existing diversity program templates. Our conversation was so extensive, I've actually broken it into two parts. Currently, you're listening to part one. Make sure you download part two to get the rest of the conversation. And you'll hear Vic's thoughts on what he believes are the correct steps to address diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace based on research and academia. Speaking of diversity, equity, and inclusion, did you know that Train Extra provides virtual and on-site training programs including unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion, sexual harassment prevention, anti-bullying, and civility? You can learn more at trainextra.com. That's T-R-A-I-N-X-T-R-A dot com. And if you want even more information on DEI, you can actually learn from international experts at Amplify DEI. When you join Amplify DEI, you get over 130 on-demand sessions in 17 DEI categories from nearly 70 international experts. Check out the link in the show notes to learn more. Now let's dive into the conversation with Victor Marsh. Hey Vic, how are, how are you doing? Good, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thank you for coming on to the Leading People First podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, the honor is mine. The pleasure is mine. I got a chance to listen to your back catalog and just enjoyed every minute of it. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. I hope other people are too. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's been a lot of fun. I get to have people like you on and people who are talking and doing some amazing things in the workplace. So uh, as we dive in, first question I like to ask, I'm sure because you've listened, the first question I like to ask is, what does it mean to you to lead people first? Well, I really love the question. And I love it because it's finally getting people to be thoughtful rather than Mm good-based in the work of leadership. And I think of leading people first by first and foremost being a good manager. I think that one has success in their sort of the number of wins you can have at work by not just focusing on hitting the inspirational home run as a leader, but by hitting the balls and the strikes giving feedback effectively, moving resources to your talented folks uh, on execution, right? The balls and strike matter. Having a plan, a strategy for compensation, right? Preventing so many issues, right? By doing the basics. And we've heard it all before, right? That you have a bunch of folks in a startup with positive motivation. They want to create a community. Some even say they want to create a family, right? Yeah. But beware, it is tough to give feedback inside of a family, but it's our job to do it anyway. Yeah. 
it's tough to think of adding a new family member through basically an adoption process, mm -hmm. right? Somebody who's very different <laughs> from you, right? Yeah. What's some of the hardest, trickiest adoptions? Transracial adoptions, right? So yeah. we've got to convince people to exit some of their familial patterns in the startup world in order to make progress as a society. And so I want, I think about leading people first, not as becoming uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, at the drop of the hat, right? Mm -hmm. we're, we're building widgets. We're not remaking a social democracy, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so let's, let's be a little more humble and let's hit the balls, the strikes, the bumps, feedback, compensation, resources. Nice. Yeah, there, it's all, all the little things that we can do, with, that we can tangibly do, right? We don't need to hit, like you said, we don't need to hit those home runs. Um, we, if we can hit those singles around the bases and make our way around, we'll, we'll score a lot more points than if we're constantly swinging for the fences, right? Mm -hmm. And so sorry, this is the most American uh, metaphor ever. This is U.S. <laughs> baseball. I think this might get our Japanese audience friends are fine. Koreans are fine. But there may be some breakdown in the, uh, in the Commonwealth of, yeah. of cricket. You may wonder what on just what on earth are those two humans talking about on this <laughs> podcast? So we'll find, you know, we'll we'll have, we'll switch to maybe something soccer oriented later in the yeah. podcast. Oh, <laughs> uh, you'll lose me on soccer. You'll lose me there. I, I'm not a, not a soccer guy. Well, uh, I mean, you have a you have an amazing background. The work that you're currently doing and researching. Uh, organizational development and psychology and, and diversity is incredible, especially during this time, this specific moment in history that we're in. So mm -hmm. I'd love for you to share and walk us through how you learned to lead people first and got you to where you are today. Gotcha. Well, great. This is it's great to have some reflective moments and <laughs> reflection is so important. Uh, but it's also a challenge because as uh, someone who dives into psychology, I know that memory is a tricky thing yeah. and memory is <laughs> the servant of, not the challenger to, uh, self-promotion biases, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I want to try to reflect as carefully as I can on maybe the the less... Um, self-enhancing side to try to correct my, my sure, natural sure. tendencies a little bit here. So, you know, I, I'd say, you know, think of me as a born G-man. You know, my mother and father, who are both Detroiters to the core in Michigan, if you get all A's, then you tell your ch child to become an engineer. Now, that's what they were saying with their mouths, but that what they were doing in their practice is that both of them were deeply involved in local community organizing, in local politics. Um, they were on the board of the women's shelter. They were on the board of the Coalition on Temporary Shelter for Homelessness. They were on the board for the HIV AIDS Council of Southeastern Michigan, uh, my mom chairing it and then my dad. Um, so literally everything uh, Big Vic and Cheryl did was related to turning their smarts into practical positive results for victims of an epidemic and victims of structural poverty, right? 
So that's how they spent their time. My mom taking her marketing skills and putting them into grant writing in the public health sector. My dad taking, uh, he was the University of Michigan Ann Arbor's first graduate in, uh, he created the major for industrial relations and HR stuff. Um, And he put that to work with um, OIC International, which was an important um, uh, organization for expanding um, equal access to jobs throughout the country. So when they, when we moved back to Detroit and I was two years old, I was surrounded by local politics and the search for fairness. Me and my brother, John, with our Game Boys at the back of meetings, told to be quiet, read a bunch of books, and then you could reward (laughs) yourself with playing Game Boys at the end. I didn't think I was paying attention to what my parents were doing. Um, mostly I was bored in a bunch of late night meetings, right, yeah. of the HIV AIDS council, et cetera. But apparently I learned some stuff in the background um, to now that I'm 37 years old now. Um, I kind of don't get why people don't understand how to make a board meeting useful. <laughs> it's one of those things where I'm just like, wait, you, you know how to do this, right? Didn't anyone else grow up with this? Why am I the only person who knows how to do this? How to succession plan a board so that you get the right mix of diverse voices in the room? You know, like, it turns out that was an advantage I had. And so I went to school uh, thinking I would try for management science and engineering only because it felt you know, not as hardcore, like I was just trying to do anything else but the hardcore techie stuff. Um, uh, And so a friend of mine said, you should pick your major by trying to get into an upper division graduate class your freshman year. So I went for two. I said, okay, I'm going to try this international relations thing, this master's level class there. And then I'm going to try to apply to this management science and engineering thing. And lo and behold, Ambassador Dick Morningstar said yes. And Professor Kathy Eisenhardt said no. (laughs) Interestingly enough, it looks like I'm slated to do a postdoc in Kathy Eisenhardt's department next year. (laughs) So we've come full circle. But I started off learning about U.S.-European Union relations my freshman year back in 2001, um, just weeks after September 11th, diving into foreign policy and became the G-man that my parents told me not to be, right? Yeah. Entered a career, <laughs> entered what we do in diplomacy is the ROTC a version of that, the yeah. Pickering and Wrangell Fellowship. So uh, took a version of the Foreign Service Officer Test and the Foreign Service Oral Exam at age 19. Uh, entered the fellowship, spent my summers at public policy, uh, like economics and politics camps. Um, and uh, was taught in leadership classes, right? As part of that experience. Um, Things that I got wrong from the very beginning was, I think, an over-focus on what was my strength, right? I'm an extrovert who's talented at kind of breaking the ice with people. And so I leaned heavily on that. Yeah. Um, even as I entered the career and, you know, my very first job in the U.S. Department of State was to manage 25 people in a visa unit in Hong Kong. 
And boy, did I think I could charm my way into strategic <laughs> success. You know? Yeah, how did that go? <laughs> oh, my Lord. My goodness. <laughs> the problem with focusing and leaning on your interpersonal charm. When you are a decision maker for a visa unit, is that at some time, at some point, you're going to have to face the challenge of making decisions that disappoint someone. And the last thing you need in, is a people pleaser in a visa unit, right? Yep. <laughs> the job involves disappointing someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if the nation is to be secure, you're going to have to break some bad news to yeah. people occasionally, <laughs> right? Yeah. This is, this is uh, what, the year is 2000. Uh, seven, probably, after yeah. my master's, um, you know, we, we had very little scope to just, you know, say yes and in and, and the session with happy days for everyone. Because mm-hmm. your job is to carry out the law as it's written. Yep. Even if you have personal disagreement with the way we control the, the sort of faucet of who gets a visa and who doesn't and right. how that works. The matter of who writes the law is for the democratically elected members of the U.S. Congress. So implementing a pretty tough set of laws when you're a people pleaser, trying to balance multiple powerful Hong Kong Chinese experts who reported to me um, and knowing that I couldn't just go with the friendly person I liked, but well, learning the hard work precisely that I had to stop going yeah. and rewarding and trusting the friendly person I like and had to lean instead on the, you know, rough around the edges woman who knew her stuff, mm-hmm. right? And was going to give us higher accuracy, right? So learning the hard way through errors um, to lean on evaluating things with a little more detachment and a little less liking bias was was how I learned to lead. I learned it by making errors. Yeah, I think that a lot of our society, right, we, we shy away from failure, right? We shy away right. from mistakes. And, you know, failure is the best is the best uh, teacher. I mean, we, we need to allow ourselves, we need to forgive ourselves for failing we need to allow those around us to fail um, because those are all learning moments right i mean you you have a kid i have two kids like the best mm-hmm. way that they can learn is by is by failing we need to apply those practices to those that we work with those that we lead in, in our organizations and our teams absolutely absolutely and you don't you don't i just don't believe that leaners are born S- some get the opportunity to learn earlier than others. Mm -hmm. And so figuring out how we design our organizations to give folks the opportunity and the grace to make some errors, but to, to learn through them, to reflect upon them. uh, That's some challenging stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, yeah. You, you put it well, we're not born that way. I think that that's a common misconception. That's something that I grew up with being like, oh, Chris, like you're a natural born leader. I'm like, okay. And then like, I just assumed that things would fall in place because of that. And then it took me a long time to realize that was not the case. Like I had a lot to mm-hmm. learn still. So 
So I know that, uh, you know, a lot of the work that you're currently doing, especially in your research, has been focused on diversity and inclusion. Yes. The first question I'd like to dive into on that are, is what are some common misconceptions that we have as, as a society about diversity and inclusion? Oh, yes. I'd say the first issue um, is actually philosophical. Right. And it puts us in a mode of continuous failure on these topics. So despite what anyone has told us, philosophy is some of the most practical stuff out there. Mm -hmm. What we hold in our minds as rules of thumb for our ethical system, it has practical day-to-day implications for how we respond to new problems. Right. And if you grow up in the United States, the default here for our culture is a default that will make it hard for us to do right in DEI. Um, so let's say there's three big schools. Utilitarianism, which is right. A lot of scientific focus is this. We want to measure the outcomes. Right. Right. Yep. You do a thing, we measure the results. The results have to be moral. Right. 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 So that's the utilitarians. Next one is uh, strangely named virtue ethics. It really has very little to do with specific virtues. That in Niccolo Machiavelli, right? Who gets, who gets a bad rap for, for some important reasons. Then finally, um, the third piece here would be the, in, also confusingly named, deontological ethics right even though it has nothing to do really with ontology right yeah. so this is this is Immanuel Kant and the way I tell my ethics students is deontology is about rules this is a rule-based system and you are moral if you follow the rules and you're a jerk if you don't follow the rules mm-hmm. right and it goes to Immanuel Kant right and so if you want to unite these ideas and remember who is the deontologist you would say this branch of ethics is about what you can and can't do. Right? <laughs> so it is Immanuel Kant's and deontology is about the rules. There are cans and there are cons. Okay. <laughs> um, so those are the three systems. United States of America, what's our culture, right? Well, culture is a nebulous thing. But maybe some comic books and some superhero movies can help us, right? Mm-hmm. Does anyone tell Luke and Leia in Star Wars to focus on the outcomes? Nope. Do they tell them to uh, strictly follow the rules? No. You see some rule breaking, right? For yeah. good positive ends. They, they kind of wheel around with the rules. What they really are is this ethics of becoming, mm-hmm. right? Americans love the ethics of becoming, right? We love a self-help bookshelf. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We are always on the road to perfection and our national credo is to make this union what? More perfect. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is a virtue ethics society. I mean, if ever there was one, right? And there's exceptions, right? You know, just because you have a culture doesn't mean everything you do is right. virtue ethics. Right. But we can say at the broad point that, that we are talking about improving ourselves, right? 
there's one drawback is that sometimes even if a problem is located in the fact that we individual biased humans have not figured out how to improve ourselves and and take away our biasings right mm -hmm. so i would say virtue ethics helps you diagnose where the problem comes from the problem comes from individual biased brains mm -hmm. and the aggregation of all of those biased brain decisions over time and across multiple hierarchical levels of an organization right those biased brains that's where the problem comes from where we slip up is not switching gears to utilitarianism to actually trace just to actually trace where the solutions come from right and what we learned from the research of sociologists and where i as a workplace psychologists have to give credit to those macro big data sociology types is that they did the scientific thing they took their utilitarian viewpoint measuring outcomes and they figured out some stuff that i never would have gotten to by myself because they focused on the results and those of us focused on psychology have been focused on where the problems come from mm -hmm. not how they get resolved right yeah, so I know that that's something that um, you've been talking about a lot on recently is is uh, this mandatory need for diversity training, right? Unconscious bias training, implicit bias training, whatever name you want to name it, right? Like right. there's this huge push from corporate America to say, well, the way that we approach diversity and inclusion in our organization is by starting with this mandatory uh, training for all employees. However, there is um, that we, we've been finding and speaking to that utilitarianism is not working, right? So mm -hmm. you're a big proponent of doing away with mandatory diversity training and instead getting kind of having this task force approach to diversity That's similar right. to like doing a research experiment or a science experiment. That's right. It took corporate culture such a long time just to implement these trainings. And now we're in this state of, especially this year, hiring heads of diversity, equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would imagine, and I'm sure you get a lot of pushback on this, is that they would be shocked if you're telling them now, you know, we need to actually do away with this mandatory training. So yeah. as, you, as you have these conversations with leaders of organizations, like, what do you tell them about this shift in, in approach? That's right. Well, I think my conversations have been um, tough, right? Um, it's funny. I was a diplomat for eight years. And then when I got into year four of my PhD program, I had somehow forgotten diplomacy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that's the thing about PhD training. It sort of toughens you. It, it sharpens the edge a little bit. You become this person who says, hey, I'm the truth seeker and I'm the truth teller. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if it's, you know, popular. <laughs> I'm a future Dr. Mars and I'm going to tell you like it is, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, it's tough because I've gotten some leeway to speak a little tough to people on these issues because of my identity, right? Which in many contexts is a strike against me. But if I'm a black dude telling you, and that's what I, a brother from Detroit, you know, yeah. 
just American black, just black, JB, no other passports. I'm here, right? And I've got no other place to go. This yep. is my country and I will stand and fight for it, right? Um, and, uh, you know, it gives me some leeway to talk a little tougher to folks. And mm-hmm. I, I use that too much, frankly. Yeah. And was uh, at times disrespectful um, when, I, when I came in with uh, these, uh, this evidence and, and browbeat people over the head. What, what I would have learned had I stayed true to my diplomatic training, right, mm-hmm. is to look for everyone's face-saving way out. And so here's the conversation, normal, and then I'll give you the diplomatic version. Okay. Normal version is me, empiricist, comes to the organization, says, you know what? The trainings you have going are not just useless, but also most likely harmful to three groups. Black women in leadership, you'll see decreases of five to 9% five years from now. Asian women and Asian men in managerial positions, you'll see decreases anywhere from three to 5% after you implement this training. It's like, so I've got a prediction mm-hmm. for you. This is all else being equal, right? Now you can boost the odds of everyone by having a task force that tracks your results, right? Mm-hmm. Not your intentions, task mm-hmm. force track, task forces of executives track numbers. Yep. <laughs> That's what they do. That they, what do executives do? They look for indicators of performance. Right. So it turns out that when you put diversity into that mix, you actually get some performance. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, the conversation usually goes with me coming in hot and heavy and saying, you're doing it wrong. Here's how to do it right. Yeah. Got to have your mentorship programs. You got to have your task forces. You got to have some kind of diversity coordinator. Uh, I don't care if they're a chief executive or whatever. What I care is that they have the autonomy to experiment with some things, mm-hmm. to try out how do you mentor in a global organization. I don't know. We don't have that off the shelf. You're going to have to invent these things. You're yep. going to have to try and have some errors and iterate. You got to have some specialists who do this full time to manage all that. And I think there's some benefit for them not to be right in the C-suite being observed all day. I think they right. need some quiet corners, some alliances with uh, you know, a work unit in another continent and a work unit in this one. And then they can report their locally driven experimental successes to the CEO and come to them not with saying, hey, here's some correlation tables from some orchestra somewhere that boosted the number of women, right? Mm -hmm. Those results were weird over there in orchestras, right? But they don't convince anyone that you who build widgets will have the same results. Right. You got to bring them data from their own company. Right. Yeah. So you need specialists on diversity who do this full time and manage this experimentation. Um, so anyway, I just come in with truth, right? I'm dropping <laughs> bombs. I'm like, yo, I'm a black dude. You can't tell me nothing. Um, I got the stats. I'm telling you what's right. I've got data from, you know, 2006, 800 large Fortune 500 firms. 2017, I've got data from 700 mid-cap firms that are publicly listed. And then forthcoming in 2021, same research group out of Harvard, 
um, Frank Dobbin and all his intellectual uh, adopted kids throughout the world, right? They're the leading experts on this stuff. Frank Dobbin has now got evidence in the thorniest of thorny ones, faculty diversity. Mm. The patterns are the same all over. But everyone keeps telling Frank Dobbin that he's crazy. It's like, oh, no, that's not our problem here. It's like, well, we've got large, we've got the big companies, we've got the medium-sized companies. So we've taken care of the whole private sector. Now we move over into a thorny kind of nonprofit-ish higher ed sector, mm -hmm. heavily regulated, funded by the government, also funded by donors. You would think, you know, this thing that is so different than private sector would have totally different outcomes for implementing Title VII mandatory training across the organization. Nope, same yeah. stuff. So, I mean, we, we see this is clearly an issue systemically, right? It's, it's a yeah. systemic issue. Doesn't matter where you go in the, right. in the country, where you work, where you grow up, um, it's an issue everywhere. Um, and so, the thing that I want to ask you about or talk about is the current state of our our country. Right? right, we currently have a significant part of our country who have been brought into these racist ideas, philosophies or they just adamantly deny any sort of racism or systemic racism. Right. I've heard two main ways to deal with this group. One is don't allow them to gaslight us, right? They've, they've been abusing us. They've been suppressing us um, for years, generations, decades, and we just need to keep fighting against them, right? Almost like fire right. against fire. It's that it's the Malcolm X approach. And the other is this, more compassionate, allow them to have a safe space and have mm -hmm. conversations to change their minds again. And that's the, you know, Martin, Martin Luther Jr. King uh, approach, right? This, this mm -hmm. fire with fire and this compassion side. I see and understand arguments for both approaches, but what about you? What, what do you think about that? I am, you know, and this gets to the second leg of this, which is the diplomacy side. Honestly, we got to listen to MLK Jr., even though our hearts are crying out. And this is an imperfect comparison, right? You know, Malcolm X and MLK yeah. Jr. were actually contemporaries who yes. actually agreed yeah. on so much, yeah. right? <laughs> but in our, you know, the way we digest this for the children in yeah. passing along our nation's heritage to the next generation does set up the parts where they had some rhetorical disagreement, right? Mm -hmm. they, they had a different set of emphases, right? right? Which were really about what's the method to get towards uh, justice. You know, at the end of the day, I think some paradox thinking, you know, from some more Asian traditions is going to be really helpful here. Um, I think everyone needs to imagine um, the kind of the, the person in the middle, you know, between um, uh, say the Martin Luther King Jr. position classically told and the Malcolm X position classically told. Mm -hmm. the, the position in the middle is what we would talk about as accountability theory, right? And this is a softer touch of accountability than mm -hmm. we're used to. I'm not talking about what the JDs mean and the lawyers mean with mm -hmm. accountability. That's a firm hand of accountability. That's like, go see a judge, go to jail. Yeah. Right. And so there are a lot of folks in working places who don't want the diplomatic approach 
especially victims of discrimination, right? Imagine you've been victimized at work. If you're victimized at work and you notice that the, um, and you notice that a lot of the precursors to your victimization were these, these small slights, these small, a lot of people refer to it as microaggressions, right? Mm -hmm. Then you're in the position where you want to go full, you know, you know, our so-called Malcolm X, right? You're like, yo, I need to fight that with fire. I need to stand up and defend my honor, right? I need to show some self-respect and demand that there is accountability for these microaggressions. Yep. So you want a grievance board, right? Right. There's only one problem. Those type of firm hand accountabilities, that less diplomatic approach is a, it, it is associated with, right? Sharp declines in black women becoming leaders at your firm or becoming faculty at your university. Now this is terrible news, mm -hmm. right? Because the last thing of someone who is, who may not call themselves a victim, but let's be frank, there are a lot of people who are victims of discrimination, gender, race, intersection of both, right? The double whammies faced by a black woman, an Asian woman, a Latina. And at the end of the day, if you've been kicked around, if projects you worked on got, you know, the credit for them went to the white dude in the cubicle next door for no reason, mm -hmm. right? If you are being counseled to lower the decibel level of your voice, even when you have put your suggestions in the sweetest possible tone, right? then you want to open up a microaggression jail and you want to fill it with white dudes, right? <laughs> That's the instinct. Yeah. That's the instinct, yeah. right? And I've been there. Look, I've been there. I have literally been in the top six most qualified people on earth for a very specific job and have seen that job go to a white dude. It's happened in my life. I get it. Mm -hmm. So the motivation is one I understand. It's one I empathize with, but my study of this in the school of, of Frank Dobbin, in the school of Sandra Caleb, in the school of um, Aaron Kelly, um, those utilitarian scientists in sociology have tracked what works and what doesn't, and you are guaranteed to failure if you give yourself over to those angry approaches. Right. Well, well said, well said. Um, yeah, there's a lot that, I mean, it's, it's our natural instinct to fight against that, right? To fight for our egos, to fight for our dignity, to fight for our pride. Um, and typically the first response that we have as humans, I think, is to lash out, right? Mm -hmm. to, to yell, to scream, to whatever it might be, uh, you know, this, this retribution, this, this, you need to pay for what you've done. Um, okay. But if you look at, you know, let's take this in a different context. If you look at what the United States has done from a, uh, from a foreign policy standpoint, right? If you look at what we've done, 
uh, especially with the Middle East back in the early 2000s, mm-hmm. post 9-11, and we, quote unquote, you know, set fire to their country, right? Mm-hmm. Um, did, that, did that all of a sudden quell, you know, the terrorist organi- organizations? No, it actually mm-hmm. boosted them up and made them grow stronger, right? So these, these individuals and groups that are it that have these extreme views you cannot fight with fire because it's just going to fuel them more Mm -hmm. and it's going to create more fear and more anger so that's definitely not the the route that we can take even though that's the route we want to take so very very good point and it's tough right because we saw the twin towers fall and what do we want you know you got a country whose blood ran hot. Yep. Millions of people, right? Were temporarily in a zone where we supported war. Yeah. Right? It was a fever. Honestly, it was a fever. Yeah. And if you have a fever in a country that literally, I mean, we've got we've got small islands that are kind of not self-governing, right? They don't have senators in the Commonwealth, the Northern Marianas Islands or Guam, where America's day begins. So this is an empire. Sorry to break it, folks. It's a democratic-ish empire, but it is one and the greatest one since Rome. And if you catch a fever of anger in an empire that is the most preeminent one on the planet, some damage is about to happen. Thanks for listening to the first part of this conversation with Vic. Make sure you download and listen to part two, where we talk about diplomacy, scrapping unconscious bias training in favor of task forces, cancel culture, intersectionality, psychological safety, and giving employees time to engage in social justice issues. Talk to you real soon.